continue our studies in the book of Psalms. And three more weeks, God willing, well, I think four more weeks, uh, we'll be finished with the book of Psalms. But tonight, Psalm 147 is about what gives God joy. What gives God joy? And this is another psalm expressing praise and a psalm that places a strong emphasis on things created, God's creation. And this psalm was likely written following the return of the Jewish people to Jerusalem from their Babylonian captivity. And the makeup of this psalm serves three purposes. And with each section, it starts with a command to praise the Lord. First of all, in verses 1 through 6, we have a command to praise the Lord for his restoration mercies. And God can restore. He can give us back those things that sin has taken away. And, and things that, you know, through foolish choices we have lost. Secondly, in verses 7 through 11, we have a command to praise the Lord for the joy that he finds in his people. And we, it kind of goes along with the psalm, the, the study this morning that, you know, God loves his people and he wants to fellowship with them. He wants to be with them. He wants to spend time with them. And that's what brings him joy. And then thirdly, in verses 12 through 20, we have a command to praise the Lord for the word, for his word, the Bible. The theme of the psalm is what gives God joy. And even though God created everything, his greatest joy comes from our genuine worship and trust in him. We don't know who the author is of this particular psalm. So let's begin with verse 1, Psalm 147. And the psalmist says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Or the King James Version says, comely. This command to praise the Lord, as it should be, is directed to all of those who owe anything to the goodness of God. And I can't, I, I can't imagine that there's not one of us that doesn't owe something to the goodness of God. I mean, first of all, our salvation. All the things that God has done for us, past, present, and the things that he'll do for us in the future. We all owe a lot to God's goodness. We can't pay him for his goodness. We can't earn, you know, his goodness, but we can praise him for it. And we shouldn't just praise God uh, now, in the present, but forever. It says here, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Why? Because it's right. Because it's beautiful. It's good. And again, it says here, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It's good because it's acceptable with God. He loves to hear the songs of praise that we give him. And it's helpful to ourselves. And it encourages our fellow man. It's always a good time to praise the Lord. We never have to ask our Lord, is this a good time to, to praise you? It's always a good time to praise the Lord. There's never a bad time to praise the Lord. I mean, doing something that's good is a good reason for us to keep doing it all the time. Singing praises to God is the best possible way, I think, to use our voice. You know, we use our, 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 our mouth for a lot of things, our voice for a lot of things. You know, sometimes saying the, word, the, the wrong things. 
you know, saying things that, that aren't right, you know, maybe in an emotional moment, a, a fit of anger, and, and we speak things that, that we shouldn't. But to sing, using our voice, using it to, to, because it, it speaks of God. It, it can speak for God. It can speak to God. We can use it in, in a joyful, reverent way. And to have a song in our heart, and we've heard that song, you know, people are out there, that saying of people to have, oh yeah, I have a song in my heart. And that's a good thing. We should have a song in our heart. But to sing with our heart and our voice is even better. You know, to sing exactly what that, that, what that song is that we're feeling in our heart, that's a good thing. Because it allows others to join in with us as we sing. Jehovah is our God. He's our covenant. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our fortress. He's our hope. He's our shield. He's our buckler. He's our present help in time of trouble. And we could go on all night and say what he is. But it gives you the idea why he deserves our praise. So let's give him the honor of our praise. And the best way that that might be communicated to is in our songs of praise to him. It says here in verse 1, it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Praise is pleasant and it's beautiful. It's pleasant and right. It's sweet and it's appropriate to sing praises to the Lord Most High. It's pleasant to hear and to see a whole congregation praising the Lord. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than when everybody is singing. Now, individually, we may not sound all that good. But when we are singing together, there's nothing more beautiful. Nothing more beautiful than seeing the whole congregation singing together. Not worried about what they sound like. But knowing that they're honoring God with their voice. It's pleasant to hear and to see a whole congregation praising the Lord. Look at verse 2 now. He goes on to say, The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. Now here's, again, remember, they, this, is, this, is, this song was written possibly after the return to Jerusalem from their seven years of captivity in Babylon. So they're coming back now, and, and their, Israel's homes were broken. Now they're being rebuilt. And in God's grace, he built up Jerusalem after their exile. This rebuilding shows that he is the God who heals the brokenhearted. If you will give him the pieces, he will heal the broken heart. Those who repent and those who return to him are healed and they're restored. The gospel church, the Jerusalem that's from above is of this building. Christ's church is, is, is his building from above. He framed the model of the church. In his own word, in his own counsels. He started it by the preaching of his gospel. And he adds to the church daily those that should be saved. God is the one who brings the increase. And he will build it up to perfections. And he said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. It says, notice there, he gathers the outcasts. 
God builds and he gathers the outcasts. And I thank God that he gathers the outcasts. Because I would consider myself one. Are any of his people outcasts? Because maybe they've made themselves outcasts by their own foolishness. Do you feel like you're an outcast? Well, it says there he gathers them. He gathers them and you, them and you by giving them repentance and bringing them again into the spiritual relationship with the brothers and sisters. Have they been forced out? And again, in this case, maybe they were forced out by war or famine or persecution when they were in exile. He opens the door for them here to come back. Many of them were missing. Many of them were thought to be lost. or They're they're brought back. And those that were scattered are now gathered together again. Verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. They have broken hearts. They had wounded souls. And there are broken hearts and wounded souls all over the world tonight. The whole human race, the whole human creation is groaning. God works here to heal and to restore. And you know what? Christianity, the Christ, I should say, the Christ of Christianity is the restoring factor. He's the remedy to being rebuilt, to being restored, to be healed. If you'll just give them the broken pieces. Their hearts are pierced. Not just pierced, but their hearts were ripped apart. Under the sense of the dishonor that they've done to God. They went into exile because of their sin. God allowed them to be taken into captivity because of their sin. So their hearts were ripped apart. They, they felt dishonored. That the dishonor that they've done to God and the injury that they did to themselves because of their sin. And understand, sin will destroy us. It will ruin us. But to those who God heals with the comfort of his spirit, he gives them peace. And he assures them that their sins are forgiven and that he's reconciled them to himself. So they're no longer anxious and it makes them able to rejoice and to be at peace. Because when he brought them out of that horrible pit. And he set their feet upon a rock. He put a new song into their hearts and into their mouths. Verse 4. He counts the number of the stars and he calls them all by name. I love this verse. Nothing escapes God's knowledge nor his eye. Remember, Israel went into Babylonian captivity. But notice what he says. He counts the number of stars. He calls them all by name. Talking about creation. He knew the number of the exiles. He knew the number of the people that were taken captive. He knew where they were all that time. He knew the name of each one of them. Just like the psalmist is pointing out here in verse 4. Just like he knows the number of the stars and each of their names. Think about that. How great... The, 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 you know, the, the universe is. The sky, the galaxy, the stars, all, all, that's, all that's up there. He knows every star and he knows how many there are and he knows them by name. 
And he says that about you and me. He says, I know who you are, where you are. I know your name. God is greater than anything or anyone on earth or anything or anyone in heaven. Listen to Isaiah 40, 26. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. When he talks about the stars and the heavens. Who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. And not one is missing. Think about that. Not one is missing. His creation shows his wisdom. It shows his power and it shows his vastness. It shows how big he is. And he's greater than the nations, and he's greater than their gods. God founded the earth. And he sits on the throne of heaven, and he laughs, as Psalm 2, 4 says, as he looks down. Nothing is equal to our God, nor greater than our God. There is nothing like our God. No, no one, not a thing like our God. Nothing that can comp- be compared to our God. Satan ain't, is not even a, a close equal. To God. He's not the opposite of God. Everything Satan does, he needs God's permission. The next time you're tempted to think that the world is bigger than God, go back and look and remember Isaiah 40 15. It says, The nations are as a drop in a bucket. Look up into the sky at night. Next time you think God is small. And if you ever feel so small that you wonder if God really cares about you personally, remember that he knows how many stars there are. He knows each one by name, and he knows your name as well. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 29 through 31, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, which was really cheap? And not one of them, he says, not one of them, not one of those sparrows fall to the ground. He's apart from your father's will. Not a bird drops from the sky unless the Father allows it. Jesus said, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Can you imagine? God knows the exact number of the hairs on your head, whether it's a lot or a little. He knows. He said, do not fear, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. If God knows how many birds in the sky there are, and if he knows when one falls from the sky, how much, if that's important to God, how much more important are you to him? Verse 5. The psalmist says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. Notice, his understanding is infinite. That's another wonderful thing about God. His understanding is infinite. The psalmist here mentions this as one example of many to show that the Lord is great and our, great, and our Lord's great power is great. The scripture says that God can do what he pleases. And of his understanding, notice, it's infinite. There's no way to measure God's wisdom. So you see, whatever God does is best. His wisdom is infinite. Man's knowledge is so limited. You know, after a while, he just runs out of ideas. I think the example of of our world and this government today is a picture of that. They don't know what to do. They run out of ideas. Man's drained of his thoughts. His wisdom can't go much further. 
But God's knowledge is boundless. It has no limits. It's infinite. It can never be measured or understood. As Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, God says, higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I'm glad. If somebody's going to guide me through my life, I want them to be smarter than me. I want their wisdom to be greater than mine. Because back in the day, I messed up my life. Thinking I was so smart. Thinking I knew what I was doing. Thinking I was in control of every move I made. Next thing I know, I find myself calling out to God. Lord, help me. Help me. Verse 6. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked down to the ground. This word humble often means meek. And it has several different meanings as it's used in the word of God. But its root idea seems to be low, a lowly feeling about ourselves. Humble, humility, a lowly feeling about ourselves. This relates to both humility and disinterestedness. In other words, it expresses the feeling of the crushed man. Who has become heartless, spiritless, who's broken down, who has totally lost his drive. Who, like David, when he was in his time of his distress, he called out, he, he called out to God in his faithless, faithless fear. He said, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. David had, had a, 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 a time of where he was not living according to the will of God. Saul had been hounding him like a dog. Just chasing him down, wanting to kill him. He didn't know what to do. He didn't stop and just trust in the Lord at this point in his life. He ran away. He ran away to a place where God didn't send him to. He lived there for almost a year and a half out of the will of God. And he joined the enemy to try to stay away from Saul, thinking that would cure everything. He said, oh, he said, if I run away and I go down here and I live in Gath and, and, and I, you know, stay there. He says, Saul will leave me alone. And that was a result of, of, he said, that he looked within himself and he said in his heart. No, he said in his heart. That's, that's what he came up with. If I do this and I do this and I do this, he says, I'm going to be okay. And instead he found himself in a real, real bad place, out of the will of God. There is something of that heartlessness and hopelessness indicated here in this, in this passage, in this text. But here's the neat thing. The Lord, the Lord pities us. He, he's, he, he has compassion and sympathy for us. But you know what? The Lord doesn't just pity us and then do nothing. Remember like the priest and the Levite did when they came and they found the, uh, uh, the, the man stripped and wounded in the ditch, left to die on the side of the road? Too often man does that. Man just pities Oh, I feel so sorry for that person. Oh, I sure hope somebody helps that person out. But they don't do anything. But he feels good. Because he thinks, oh, I just, you know, I, I just, my heart just goes out to that guy. And, you know, it makes me feel good because I pitied him. Made him feel like he was tender and loving and sensitive and feeling. But he didn't do anything. 
Now think about that for a minute. Think that if that's all that God did, that is, he pitied us. He would look at us and just pity us. But that's all he did. We couldn't have any comfort in God if, at all if all he did was pity us. But I know that God pities us and, and, he, and he sympathizes with us and he has compassion and mercy for us and he does something for us. God graciously helps those that he pities. Like the Good Samaritan did. Devoting himself, the Good Samaritan devoted himself to help that man who was in trouble. That man, he, it stirred up his feelings. And he acted upon his feelings. He just didn't say, oh, this poor man, he's been beat up and left in a ditch to die as he walks by. No, his feelings were stirred up, but his, his feelings stirred him, drove him to do something for that man. He patched him up and, and he sent him on his way in better condition. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said, too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but not, are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. You see, God upholds the crushed, the humbled, the heartless man in danger of falling and fainting and can hardly hold himself up. But God will. Look at verses 7 through 9. The psalmist says, Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises on the harp to our God who covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens that cry. Here again, we have another call to praise God. And in this case, it's to sing to him with thanksgiving with a new reason to do so. Those reasons were given in verses 7 through 9. And along with praising God because of his care for his people in verses 1 through 3, even those who seem to be the least important, like in verses 4 through 6, we should praise God because he cares for the animals that he created as well. The psalmist says here that God covers the earth with clouds. And like the clouds that we have right now, what do they do? They bring rain. What does the rain do? It causes the grass to grow. The grass is the food for the cattle. Not only are the cattle provided with, uh, provided with food, but all the other creatures are too. He says even the baby ravens, the little birds, And these verses show the psalmist's thoughtfulness and his sensitivity to nature. To God's creation, to God's creatures. And he has spoken to Jerusalem and its people early in this psalm. Because you see, he was one of those people. And he'll speak later about the city in verses 12 through 14. Rejoicing over its security and its peace. But before he does, he thinks of the animals here and of God's care for them. Look at verse 10 now. It says, he does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. So after the psalmist has shown that there's proof of God's goodness in every part of the world, he takes special notice now that men, ha- <clears throat> that men have no strength except what God gives them. 
And he adds this for the specific purpose of checking the pride by which most all men are puffed up. We get big heads when we're prideful. And that leads us to trust in our own strength. Oh, I'm educated. I'm smart. You know, I'm, I'm a wise person and, and I, can do, I can handle this on my own. I can take care of myself. The meaning of the passage is this. If a man comes in his own strength, that is, if he, if, he, if he lives on his own strength and he does what he needs to do in his own strength, and with all the help that seems to him most powerful, this will only result in uselessness. This will only get in the way of the mercy of God. And that's kind of what we'll see at the end of Job. For the first 35 chapters, you don't hear a word from God. Because Job's been pride, prideful and he's been talking for himself and he's been defending himself. That's why God didn't say a word. And then when we get to the end of Job, that's where you start to hear from God. Because Job said, I no longer have anything to say. Finally, Job. For 36 chapters, you've been doing this and you never let me, you never let me speak. Then he really gets down on Job. Where were you, Job, when I hung the heavens? Where were you, Job, when I put up the stars in the sky? And he just, he couldn't answer. And you see, when we keep trying, stop trying in our own strength, and we quit trying to defend ourselves, and we're proudful, and then God will stand back and just let you wear yourself out. Have at it, he says. And when you, when you crumble under the weight of your own wisdom and strength and pride, he says, I'll, I'll pick you up. Now, again, the meaning of the passage is if a man comes in his own strength and he, and he looks at all the things that are going to help him and they're most powerful, again, it, it's not going to help him. It's going to get in the way of God's mercy. God will just stand back and let you go at it. God's mercy is the only thing we have to stand on. Now, the strength of the horse is a figure of speech here, and, and it's to mean any kind of protection. We've all heard the term, oh, that, that person's as strong as a horse. It's kind of the idea here. It's a figure of speech to mean any kind of protection. Now, it, not, not that God is displeased with those things in themselves, considering he's given, those, he's given horses to help. Okay, farming and, and different kinds of things. So he's given those, the, the, the strength of horse to help. But he's using the example that he doesn't trust in, in the strength of, uh, don't, don't trust in the strength of anything but God, basically. Don't get caught up in a false confidence in the strength of, of your own or somebody else's. Because very, very commonly, when, when any resource that we go to that's at hand, we, we're, we're foolishly stirred up about it. We get prideful and we get lifted up with pride. We're depending on ourselves or something else other than God. So he, he opposes, depending on the strength of both men and horses, for his hope and mercy. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He's not going to depend on the strength of men or horses or anything for his hope and his mercy. Rather, he's going to trust on God, trust in God with a reverence and a holiness. And he's going to depend upon the grace of God. 
So we learn that he only condemns that strength that would take away from God's honor that he's due. Verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure, notice, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. If we really believed this verse and we really wanted to please God, we'd give more time to spiritual things than to worldly concerns. Now, there's nothing wrong with physical strength or beauty. That's not what God is saying. God made them both. But physical things pass away. And while the one does, when our physical strength passes away, the strength of God, the power of God never passes away. Somewhere it said that God is not a lover of horses nor of birds, but of men and desires to dwell with those that are eminently good. Nor does he refuse nor despise the familiar converse of a man divine and wise. Verse 12. The psalmist goes on to say, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. So here, the, here Jerusalem, the holy city, and Zion, the holy hill, are called on to praise God. Calling Jerusalem and Zion to praise God. Jerusalem was surrounded by its protecting walls. And its citizens could work safely in there, in the, within the walls, and rest in peace. In addition to this general praise which everybody can join is, there are special reasons why Jerusalem and its citizens should praise God. Just as now, in addition to the general reasoning related to all the people, why they should praise God, there are special reasons why Christians, his redeemed people, should praise God. What are those reasons? Well, as applied to the citizens of Jerusalem, it's specified now in the following verses, beginning with verse 13. Because he has strengthened the bars of your gates and he has blessed your children with, with, with you, within you. The additional reasons to pray God, praise God, he's made you safe. He's made you secure as if he had given additional strength to the fastenings of the gates of the city. You see, cities were surrounded by walls. That was their protection. You entered the city through gates. Those gates were fastened by bars across them, and the gates were secured to the bars bars that were across them. Now, what's helpful here might be applicable to any period of time. You know, what's said here might be applicable to any period of any time. But it's probable there's a peculiar reference here to Jerusalem as made strong in rebuilding it after the return from Babylon. More reason to to, to praise God. He says, he has blessed your children within you. That is the inhabitants. He's blessed them by giving them safety and giving them space. Goes on to say in verse 14, he makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest of wheat. The word border here refers to a boundary. And it stands for all, the, all of the area or territory included within the boundaries of a country. The idea is that peace existed throughout the land. He says that he fills you with the finest wheat. In the Hebrew, wheat literally means the fat of wheat. And the fat of anything in the scripture was the best. He fills you with the best of wheat. The fat of the wheat. He says, there's no lack of wheat and it's of the best kind. 
Psalm 132.15 says, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. In that psalm where it says, I will abundantly bless, the word bless means blessing, I will bless. It's a strong confirmation, meaning that he would definitely do it, that he would do it in every way, and that every needed blessing would be given to them. The word rendered provision here is a similar word of the word in Psalm 78, 25, translated meat. God would give them provision, meat, food. It says he sent them meat or food to the full. Notice, it's not to get by on to the full. It properly refers to food for a journey, but it's applicable to any kind of food. The original idea is that of food obtained by hunting. Like if you went out hunting for a deer. The meaning here is that God would provide abundantly for their support. He said, I will satisfy her poor with bread and I will give them what they need. Again, reasons the psalmist is giving why, why the people should praise God. Verse 15, again, he sends out his command to the earth. He, his word runs very swiftly. He sends out his command to the earth. In other words, this is with reference to the, the fruits, the productivity of the earth. To the changes that occur uh, on the earth. The seasons, for example. The snow, the frost, the ice, the cold, the heat, the wind. He is universally and immediately obeyed. The seasons obey God. Creation obeys God. Man seems to be the only creature that doesn't obey God. Nature obeys God. The seasons come round every year. The sun and the moon, they set, set and rise every day. Nature everywhere surrenders a willful submission to the will of God. Verse 15, the psalmist says, His word runs very swiftly. That is, as if it hurries to obey God. There's no delay. There's no thinking twice about it. The psalmist said in Psalm 33, 9, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Think about that. He spoke and it was done. When he created it, he spoke And it was done. The snow, the frost, the cold, the heat, the wind. They're all obedient to him. There's no reluctance. There's no hesitation in obeying God. There's no delay. Verse 16, he goes on. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He covers the earth with snow. (laughs) In some parts, he's doing that right now. He covers the earth with snow as if, you know, so that it seems to be clothed in a wool covering. It says here he scatters the frost like ashes as if ashes were scattered over the earth or as easily as one scatters ashes. Verse 17, he casts out his hail like morsels who can stand before his cold. The word rendered morsels properly means a bit like a crumb as a crumb of bread. So the suggestion here would seem, to be that, would seem to be speaking of the hail, which God sends on the earth as easily as somebody scatters crumbs of bread from their hand. And he says, who can stand before his cold or the hail? The idea is that no one can stand before the pouring down of hail when God sends it down or scatters it on the earth. Verse 18, he sends out his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters flow. He sends out his word, that is his commands. 
or he speaks and he melts them. He melts the snow. He melts the ice. The idea idea is that they are entirely under his control. The snow, the melting of the... Everything is under the complete control of God. They obey him when he speaks. He causes, notice it says, his wind. It's God's wind. He causes his winds to blow. The warm south wind, his wind. Because he directs it and he causes it to do his will. It says, and the waters flow. The snow and the ice melt. Verse 19. He declares his word to Jacob. That's another name name for Israel. His statutes and his judgments to Israel. It says, he declares his word to Jacob or Israel. His commands. He declares his commands, his promises, his laws to Israel. The things which were mentioned before relating to the world in general. All people see his works. They all enjoy the benefits and the way he designed the seasons and the changes that take place on the earth. But he has especially blessed his own people by giving them his laws, his revealed word, the Bible. This this makes them different. This makes God's people different above all other nations of the earth. And he gives them a special reason for thankfulness because he's given us his word, the Bible. It says his statutes and his judgments to Israel. That is his laws, his written word. The word judgments here refers to the law of God as being that which he judges or determines to be right. Look at verse 20 as we close. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his judgment, they have not known him. Notice that. He has not dealt with any nation like he has with those who has received his word. And he's speaking about Israel here in this particular instance. He has favored Israel more than any other people by giving them his revealed truth. That's why Israel, such a small country, still exists today. Germany tried to wipe them out. They're still here today. Where's Germany? Where's anybody that has tried to do away with Israel? That's his people. The Jews are God's people. That's his land. There was no nation in the ancient world so favored as the Hebrew people. And it's the same with God today. They're still his people. They'll always be his people. There is no nation so blessed as the nation that has, that has the revealed will of God, the Bible. And that's why this country, when it was founded by our forefathers, it was founded on the word of God. That's why this country has been so blessed. That's why people want to come to this country. But that is slowly changing today. Other countries are mocking us. Why? Why are, you, why are you allowing to happen what is taking place right now? People are trying to escape socialistic countries and communistic countries to get to this country. But it's slowly turning that way. The possession of that book in your lap gives a nation an infinite superiority in all of its ways over all others. 
If we lose it, we lose everything. In laws, in customs, in morals, in intelligence, in social life, in purity, in charity, in prosperity, this book elevates a nation at once and it scatters blessings that can be received from nothing else. The highest compassion that could be shown to any nation would be to put the word of God in their hands in their own language. In verse 20, the psalmist says, and as for his judgments, they have not known them. Other nations are ignorant of his laws, of his statutes, and of his revealed will. And because they don't know God's word, his judgment, they're subjected to all kinds of problems that arise from not knowing those laws, God's word. The fact that the ancient people of God possessed God's word was a good enough reason for the hallelujah that comes at the end of this psalm. And the fact that we possess God's word, we possess his judgments, is also a good enough reason why we should also shout out and cry out and praise hallelujah. Father, once again, we come before you to thank you for your word, Lord. And Father, we we do shout out hallelujah, Lord. Praise the Lord and thank you that we have a Bible, Lord, that we have your judgments, God. Lord, help us to get back to the basics of your word, to the morals of your word, God. To the power of your word, Lord, to the morality of your word. Father, help us to Lord, just to live your word, Father, to tell others about your wonderful word, God, that they may experience your favor, God, your goodness, that we can live in peace and security in our nation, God. Lord, that we would once again be a powerful nation, God, a nation that people looked up to, God, a nation that people wanted to come to, Lord. But Father, again, help us to get back to the basics of your word, Lord. So Lord, may you just cover us. We pray for our country, God. We pray for our government, Lord. We pray for those in leadership. Lord, we pray that they would seek you, God, that they'd understand Their biggest problem, Lord, is leaving you out of the decision-making process, Lord. By twisting morals and culture, God. Making things right in their own eyes, God. Thinking they're doing the right thing, Lord. Thinking they're making the country better when in reality, God. It's going down fast. Lord, we ask for mercy. Lord, we ask for that that compassion, that grace, God. Not because of the sin, God, 
We know that you must judge sin, God. But we do pray that you be merciful to us, Lord. Father, may you bless all these people here tonight, Lord. May you have your hand upon them. May you keep them safe and healthy, Lord. As well as those that may be viewing tonight, God. Lord, be over us. Cover us from this pandemic, God. Be with our friends and those that are sick. And Father, we look to you now and always. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.